Welcome to the OT Roundtable, episode number four. Do occupational therapy practitioners make good entrepreneurs? Welcome to the OT Roundtable, a podcast where we discuss a wide range of topics related to the field of occupational therapy. We are here to shed light on things that are happening within the profession and bring awareness to these topics through raw and honest conversations. So let's meet our roundtable. Firstly, I'm Brock. I'm from the Occupied Podcast. And joining me in this conversation today, I've got Michelle from Incorporate Mindfulness. How's it going, Michelle? Good. How are you, Brock? I am fantastic. I've also got Sarah Putt here from OT for Life. How are you, Sarah? I'm doing well. I am super excited to jump into today's topic. It's very much uh, right up your alley, which is cool. Yeah. Uh, and our guest <laughs> panelist today, we've got Tomiko Faison, all the way from oh, where are you at? Where are you at at the moment, Tomiko? Where are you living? I live in North Carolina. North Carolina. So Tomiko is the the host of the Therapy Entrepreneur, Entrepreneurs and Leadership of <laughs> Therapy Entrepreneurs and Leaders of Color podcast. Uh, the owner of Facing Consulting, a business coaching and consulting for therapy entrepreneurs. The author of three books on the topic, which is amazing, and also has her own therapy business has been running for about 17 years. That's a fairly incredible resume that you've got going on there. Oh, thank you. So let's dive right into it straight off the bat. I'll throw this out to anyone who's open for it. What about being OT practitioners makes us either good or bad entrepreneurs? I think um, OTs are innately passionate about helping people. And I think that helps make us good entrepreneurs. I think where we lack is business skill set and really having a good understanding, particularly of finances. Um, the OTs that I typically consult with are so into helping people and having a social impact that that sometimes overshadows the focus on understanding numbers and data, key performance indicators, and things that will make the business sustainable. Do you think that's something that like, we should be taught in school, like when we're at Sort of OT school in various countries, whatever form that takes? Or is that something that the people that are good at it just sort of have previous life experience before OT school that sort of gets them that skill set? Or, or like where where do you think, where do, okay, where are the people that are good at it, where do they get that from in your experience? Um, I think it has been a lot of uh, sink or swim, <laughs> just trying to figure it out as they go. I think it would be great if it was part of OT curriculums. You know, entrepreneurship is not necessarily for everyone. So not all OTs will want to go that in depth, but to at least have it as an elective or continuing education or support, you know, after you graduate from OT school, should you choose to pursue entrepreneurship? I think we're limited in resources and support in those areas. Now, Sarah, I know you've got your own private practice. Is this, uh, where, where did you, did, is that something you relate to? Where did you get your skill set to be able to sort of 
the business side of diving into that that world? Everything that Tamiko said, I was like, yep, that that's exactly it. Like the passion was there and I, I was ready to do it. But the business side was the side that was completely lacking and was something that I think I still deal a lot with in trying to overcome and learn and figure out. Because as entrepreneurs, we are always being faced with new challenges or looking to grow, looking to kind of move into new and different directions. So the business side was not something that I had any experience in, barely any knowledge about. And I do think right when I started, that was one of the biggest limiting factors because I really didn't know what to do and had to kind of reach out to resources and other entrepreneurs in, in the space and just be like, what do I do? Because didn't get it in school, but also kind of touching on that point, even if it was an option in school, I don't know if I would have taken it because when I was in school, I never thought that I'd be an entrepreneur. But I do wish that there was a little bit more of that discussion in school because a lot of times when I get students, they come out and they have these great ideas and I'm like, you can do it. You can definitely do it. If you're passionate about it, you can do it, but they don't believe it. So yeah, the business side, it is, you can learn it, but I would say most of us don't have that, at least when we are uh, first starting our practices or products, whatever it is that we are developing. So I think like a, a few years ago, how many years ago? I don't want to age myself too much. A few years ago, I was considering going into and like starting my own business, my own IT practice, et cetera. And it kind of got to the, uh, I guess, the point of no return. And the thing that stopped me was, pure fear over mainly I think the finances uh is that a common thing or am I just a weirdo or I mean I know I'm a weirdo but am I a weirdo because of that what do you what what would you say to me I would say that that's very common that people don't understand finances and I know we're talking about occupational therapy but just in general I highly recommend reading the book, The E-Myth by Gerber, because he talks about how most entrepreneurs or people who start businesses are not necessarily entrepreneurs. They're just really good at their craft. And so they have this epiphany and they say, okay, so I'm good at baking pies. Why don't I open a restaurant (laughs) when there's really different skill sets that are required besides just knowing how to make a good pie to, you know, run a restaurant. And he talks about the three roles, the entrepreneur who has the vision than the manager, the person that's doing the day-to-day detailed, um, like the finances and looking at, you know, the KPIs and the day-to-day management, and then the person who's actually making the pies. So I don't think you're a weirdo. <laughs> I don't think that it's, it's uncommon to not understand the finances and the business skill set. Even with me starting my business two years out of OT school and now being in business for almost 17 years, there was a lot I did not know about um, finances when I switched over to billing insurance. So I, uh, when I first started the business, I just contracted. And that w- that's a fairly simple uh, business structure. You get a contract with an agency, you invoice them, they pay you. You don't have all the overhead, you use their stuff. You know, you like, for example, you contract with a psych facility, you go into the facility and you invoice for your hours and they, they pay you. So it's pretty straightforward. When I switched over to billing insurance, 
and really having to look at uh, KPIs regularly to understand what was coming in and what was going out and all the dynamic factors that influenced it, like marketing and referrals and what referrals converted to actual clients and putting that in a spreadsheet and paying attention to it on a regular basis. I lost money, (laughs) a lot of money, but I had the passion, like Sarah said, you know, I knew I still want to do this. And I, and I feel like this is part of my vision and that God was ordaining me to do certain things, but I did not understand how the dynamics of finances and marketing work together to make sure that the business was sustainable. And I even went into that victim mode of saying, you can't be successful building insurance. There's no way you can do that. And I got on that soapbox with other people who said that until I met someone who did it in five years and sold his business. And so what I understood is like, I, there's, there's things I did not know. There was business skill set that I need to learn. We're not incapable of learning it. But it's just that if you don't know, you just don't know what you don't know. And so, like Sarah said, reaching out to other people who've already done what you want to do that can help you and help you prevent making some of those mistakes is, I think, one of the keys to to being successful um, and and pushing past that fear. You know, you see someone who's already already done what you want to do. I think it's really interesting because what you just said right there was actually the opposite for me. So I choose, I chose not to go the insurance route and I had people look at me and they're like, you're never going to make it if you don't take insurance. So when you said that, I was like, oh, wow, like, we both had the, the same thing, but it was the, the reverse uh, explanation there. So really, really interesting. I know like everyone's so far sort of really seems to put the the passion for what you want to do as almost I don't know if it's the number one priority but it's a very important priority I want to throw to Michelle because I know Michelle is dipping her toe into this world uh, again at the moment mm-hmm. how is this resonating with you I know obviously what you're you're starting up is something that you're very passionate about I know that just from our own conversations but how are you feeling with regards to incorporating that with the business? I don't know what your experience is with like the business side of it or finance side of it. How, how is this sort of resonating with you at the moment? Yeah. Um, oh gosh. So much of it has been resonating. Um, primarily the fact that you're a weirdo, Brock. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no, I get that. That's fine. Okay. That. Um, but uh I was just laughing also because you guys are all on mute. So you couldn't tell that if people are listening to this, it just sounds like crickets, like awkward. (laughs) Um, But anyway, uh, yes, so much of it has resonated with me. Um, And I I was sitting here thinking as you guys were talking that, you know, as an occupational therapist, if I had a client that was, say, struggling and they needed help, like organizing, um, starting their business or, um, like prioritizing what they needed to do, although that may not be my skill set, I could learn how to help them. And I would like dive all in, um, finding ways to help them be successful. But when it's on us, um, and it's on me and my business, suddenly I'm like, Oh, I'm not capable of this. I don't know how to do this. I am just an occupational therapist. I don't understand business, but what we are really skilled at is that activity analysis and, um, and breaking things down into manageable steps. So it's interesting how I feel like I could do that for somebody else, but then when it comes to me, 
it could go back to that imposter syndrome that we talked about in previous episodes, but um, I think I kind of, I get stuck. So yeah, maybe I need, yeah. So I don't know if that was common for you guys as well um, when you guys started out too. Yeah, I think that's why it's so important to surround yourself with people who can help you get unstuck, whether that's a coach or consultant or mentor. Um, I think it's, it's very easy to see what someone else needs. And then when it comes to you, it's hard to apply it. And so um, I like what you said about our skill set and how we can break things down. And, and maybe we have another person to come in and help us to remember to remember that and bring that out. I think too, just even just having, like, I know for me, I've had a lot of different mastermind groups that I've been a part of, and maybe we're not starting the same thing. We're, we're both not starting a private practice or, or a product or whatever it is, but it's with other people that are trying to do something that's outside of their comfort zone. And it's really that accountability that I have found to be immensely helpful. So it gives me uh, it gives me an excuse or it gives me a reason to be able to talk about and kind of verbalize what it is that I'm thinking about. And even if people might not know exactly like what to tell me to do next, but they can at least hear what I'm saying and be like, oh, you can consider this or have you thought about that? And even just having that accountability each week or each month makes you take little steps closer to that goal. And yeah, like I totally agree if I didn't have that support. I don't think that I'd even be remotely where I am today. How did you guys find that support um, or these mastermind groups? And I know that's how you two have connected. Um, I'm pointing to you at the bottom. <laughs> you guys are at the bottom of my screen. Um, but for other people that are, are looking to do that, how would you say is the best way to find support or find somebody who's going to help coach them along the process? I think now we're very blessed with the internet. And so there's lots of social media groups. You know, when I started back in 2003, that was not the case. Um, but I, I looked in the professional um, publications and I found a consultant and I saw what the consultant did. That was important to me. I wanted someone who had experience in doing what I wanted to, to do. And I found someone and I, I paid two different, one was a coach and one was a consultant uh, fairly early on. Um, and not, I didn't even use them a lot. It was just that initial consultation to help me, you know, push past um, some blocks with the learning curve. Um, but I highly recommend the social media. I meet so many people on LinkedIn. Uh, this is how I met Sarah, you know, not LinkedIn, but just on social media platforms and dialogue and you know people are talking about their pain points and you can you can connect with people who are like-minded but I'm also a big fan of investing like financially investing and understanding the return on that investment I'm not into um saying like I can't afford it <laughs> you know if it if it's part of my purpose and I know that it's going to bring value and there's going to be a return on it then I'm willing to put up the money and I've even borrowed money in order to be able to, to get that knowledge and, and learn those, learn from others. So one of the things that's always concerned me with regards to uh, 
moving into this space and following your passion and all of that kind of stuff is the old adage that when you take something that you're really passionate about and you turn it into a business, all of a sudden it then changes the meaning that it has for you. So it might be something, you know, like I'm, for instance, I'm really passionate about working with people who uh, are having issues navigating, you know, their own mental health, that kind of stuff. But for me, um, when I was considering moving into the, the private practice space, starting my own business, one of the concerns I had was, well, if I get so focused on the, the business side of it, am I going to lose that passion that I've got right now? It's And because I think of a, a very limited experience with businesses, I was like, well, I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen, but it was a very real concern for me. You, earlier, Tamika, talking about the different hats that you had to wear, did you ever find that as you, you know, learned these new hats and wore all these different hats within your business, did it change that initial passion that made you want to start your practice? I would say no. Um, I think it was learning how to delegate. Because you can't, if you're going to grow, you can't have all those hats. <laughs> you know, if you want to stay really small, then yeah, you could be the entrepreneur, the manager, and the uh, clinician. Um, I've always had a passion just for entrepreneurship in general. Like since the time I was in middle school, I started my first business. I, I just love entrepreneurship. Um, there's definitely days that I've cried. <laughs> you know, that I've went in my closet and like, God, what in the world? Like really? (laughs) I'm trying to help people. (laughs) Look at my bank account. You know, my money, like I'm bleeding right here. So um, I would say my good days outweigh my bad days. Um, And again, back to having that support network and accountability and being able to process when you're feeling like what the heck, you know, and going into your pity party and and being victim um, helped me during those time periods. But I, I don't think I've ever said like, I don't, like I'm totally losing my passion for occupational therapy. What I feel is incredibly blessed that not only that I have the freedom to be able to practice clinically if I, if I choose to, right now I'm doing mostly administrative and consultation, but also that there's so many people that are getting services that otherwise would not get services if I wasn't doing what I was doing. Like that to me is a huge blessing. Um, What you were just saying, Brock, about working in mental health, that has always been a passion of mine. And for years, I mean, to merge into that space has not been easy. Um, In the U.S., traditionally, OTs, you know, originally we started out in mental health, right? And then we kind of went more into the medical model in the early 20th century, and then we're trying to return to our roots but merging into these systems when they're looking at like, why do we need an OT to work in behavioral health? And why do we need an OT to work in the blindness system when we have, you know, these other professionals that we can pay less um, help us to understand that, that at times I've felt like I was going up against a brick wall, but staying true to that and then seeing with persistence and diligence and consistency and some of the other things we mentioned that it will come to pass. I, I, I honestly believe that where there is a need and you you have your skill set and you are persistent and diligent, eventually it will come to pass. And now I am seeing that, um, you know, after years of 
pushing for OT to be merged into the mental health system. Amazing things are happening right now um, in North Carolina um, awesome. with OT in the behavioral health system. And then also the, the people that, you know, if you decide to hire people to, to be able to have a business where people work for your, your business and they love what they do and you're not, and, you know, they come from somewhere where maybe the ethics weren't, you know, it was bad ethical practice or it was quantity over quality. And then they say, we love, you know, we we love what we do. They, they're they motivated, even if they're not making the same salary that they would make at this large corporation. I'm not giving the $10,000 sign-on bonuses. My, the therapists that work for me are contractors, but they they truly love their work. And like, this is what we went to OT school for. This is this is what it's really about. So that that actually inspires me to want to do to do more. My, my mindset is I want to make my employees the best that they possibly can be so they could go anywhere that they want to, but they want to choose to be with me because it's a good space and because of the mentorship and because of everything that I can offer as a small company. Cause yeah, like you, like what exactly what you said, like, I don't have the big sign on bonuses. I don't have all the fancy bells and whistles, but like, I really put the time and effort into my employees and want to make sure that I'm giving the best for them. And also uh, if they want to go into private practice or go into entrepreneurship, I'm like, I'm here. I'm, I'm a huge support. I wanted to go back and touch on that passion piece a little bit because I think that the passion for what it is that you're doing as an entrepreneur has to be there to push you through all the difficult situations that you have to go through. And Tamiko, when you said that you have spent days crying, I'm like, yep, mm -hmm, that's totally me right there too. And we have to have that passion for what it is that we're doing. I think a lot of people might go in having the passion for money or having the passion for being successful, whatever they term that as. But if the passion isn't in what it is that you're actually providing for the clients, for whoever it is that you're helping, then if the passion is only about money, it's going to be really hard to push through, especially the first couple years where, I mean, the, the money may or may not be there. Usually it's not there quite yet. And I, I think so many people kind of come in with that, like that wrong lens of what it is that they are passionate about and what it is, what's the reason that they are doing what they're doing. But then also as professionals, we're so good at investing in ourselves for our clinical skills of like taking a CEU and doing this to help our patients, to help our clients. But what I see a lot of entrepreneurs or maybe kind of budding entrepreneurs, they struggle in investing them in themselves for outside clinical OT skills. And they, they don't think that like going to say a social media conference or maybe a podcasting conference. I've gone to a, a bunch of those. They don't see that as, well, what is this going to bring to the table? How, how is this going to help me? And I'm like, there are so many skills that you need outside of your clinical skills to be a successful and a good entrepreneur. And I'm always trying to, I feel like I'm always trying to like battle with, help people through that battle of like, no, you got to invest in yourself. And you can learn all these new skills. Yes, it might not be how to transfer patients or how to do this clinically, but you're learning all these other skills that are necessary for entrepreneurship. Michelle, have you noticed any 
something that I was thinking about um, as you guys were talking was also um, this idea that uh, I think it really takes passion and, and we really have to care about what we, what we're doing. But um, I'm wondering if you guys feel similarly that as occupational therapists, a lot of us do have that like bleeding heart where we want to help everybody. And, um, and I wonder if that is also a challenge as an entrepreneur is that, that um, if we're always wanting to help other people kind of deciding what's going to be best for us, or maybe that means turning away clients or, um, and so I wonder if, if, uh, if, if that plays a role in making it challenging for us to be entrepreneurs. And we've talked about that, I think, in previous episodes, too, about how we really need to have healthy boundaries because we immerse ourselves so much. We're used to immersing ourselves so much in another person. Um, so how has that shown up for you guys um, with having your own boundaries? And, um, and yeah, have you had to turn away patients? What does that look like for, for you guys? Tamika's got a good system. She's got a sign on the door so she's not disturbed. Yeah, I do. so true. She I did have healthy boundaries. That's the- right. <laughs> creating healthy boundaries in the home office. I like it. Yes. Definitely. I have an 11-year-old and a 18. My son, my oldest son just turned 18 years old. So boundaries um, as a mom is huge. <laughs> but let me just transfer that over to entrepreneurship. Michelle, I, I'm so glad that you brought up that point because so many therapists that I work with, they they really say, I just want to help people. And, you know, I want to I want to waive the co-pays, which technically you're not supposed <laughs> to, to do. But because they don't want to turn anyone away, sometimes they allow their finances to be at risk. And to shift the mindset to understand that if you can have your business to be so profitable and you make a lot of money, you can help a lot of people. There's, a, there's other ways that you can help people. But sometimes I feel like in our profession, like making a lot of money is like a taboo or like it's a bad thing. I'm like, I want my, I want to be rich, <laughs> like rich and wealthy and, and not, not for me. Like I don't want to buy a gold, um, I don't know. I don't want a bunch of gold chains and gold furniture, you know, like I don't want to be on MTV Cribs or whatever the shows are where you're going through and they're looking at all this fancy stuff you have. I I want to take that money and use it to help marginalized populations, to help people that otherwise would not get services. So like therapeutic solutions cannot see everyone. So, you know, there are certain insurances that we don't take, but I created uh, or founded um, a nonprofit, Therapeutic Solutions Outreach. And so people can donate to that. And then we can then use those monies to help people who have financial hardship. Um, but understanding first, it's sort of like that thing, like put your mask on first when you're on the airplanes and they say, put your mask on first. You can't help your, you know, your, your kids if, if you don't help yourself. And of course, as a nurturer, you're probably like, oh no, look at my kid. I need to help my kid. But you have to understand if you don't help yourself, you're not going to be able to help the child. And I think the same with business. If you don't make sure that your business is financially sustainable, you're not going to truly be able to help some of those people who can't afford things. Um, And that is a huge mindset. That is a huge shift in mindset um, to, to really value wealth (laughs) and building wealth in order to to then be able to help more people and i assume that's where 
some of that coaching and mentorship can really sort of come into its own and help you with that mindset change. Did you have experience similar, Sarah? Like, did you have to go through that sort of mindset change from practice, purely practitioner to, you know, business operator and then to how am I actually going to help the most people with this business sort of mindset? Because even to me, listening to you guys explain that, there seems to be a shift, uh, like a difference between just owning your little, like I think Tamika said it before, if you know, if you want to stay small, you can wear all those hats. And there seems to be that sort of shift, like, yes, I own a business. And then there's this other shift of, I want this business to help as many people as possible. How can I make it work for itself rather than me doing it? Or how can I make the business work to, in order to do that? Did you, have you been through that, Sarah? Or are you you going through that? Or where, where are you in that sort of process that it seems to be? Oh, I've, I've been in it. And I think there's probably still some bits and pieces that I'm working through even now. My business has been in operation for five years, maybe a little bit longer than that. And it is, it, it, it definitely is a process and it starts with that passion that we talked about earlier. And then once you kind of get into the weeds, you start realizing what, what more you need to learn, what skills you need to pick up. The, I think the finance part, and we kind of keep circling back to this finance part is so important because I think just as practitioners, a lot of us, and I totally was in this boat before I started to understand it, don't value the financial part. We're just like, oh man, money, like it's, it's fine. I, I make money. It comes in. I spend money. It goes out. Everything's fine. And I wish that I would have thought about that a little bit more even before starting my business. And I think that finance piece is important because that's what keeps the skin in the game, right? If if you can keep your business successful, then you can continue to help more and more and more people. But if you're not having kind of that that financial back uh, backing, right? Like it's going to be very hard for you to continue to help. You can kind of just keep treading water of of where you're at. And I think for me, with the the big shift in the process came from working in your business to working on your business. And for the first couple of years, I mean, I was just, I was out there. I was doing everything. I was starting my day at 6 a.m. I was finishing my day at 8, 9, 10 p.m. I was doing everything that I possibly could, seeing all the clients I could. I was never saying no. And then I realized that like I was never going to be able to grow if I kept that mentality because I literally was just working myself to the ground. And I finally heard that phrase, working in versus working on your business. And I'm like, well, I'm definitely working in my business right now, but I'm not working on. And I had to take that step back and realize that putting a little bit of effort up front and working on your business is really what's going to take it to the next level if you want to grow, if you want to expand, if you want to kind of progress forward. I said the uh, what you're explaining just before sort of made me think of a lot of people probably treat this very similar to how the majority of people treat their cars. They have no idea how it works. They know it works. And when it doesn't work, I give it to someone else to fix it. Uh, I feel just purely simply because that's how I am with finances. I'm like, I don't know how it works. I know I go to work, I get paid and everything else just happens. And when there's an issue is that's when I start getting stressed, but I don't know what I'm stressed about because I don't know what's going on anyway. 
So I that just made me think I've heard that metaphor thrown about with regards to finances before. Uh, and I think even just a little bit of knowledge, same with your car, a little bit of knowledge can keep you on the road that little bit longer. And I feel like it's probably the same with finance, even just a, a little bit of knowledge is going to keep you engaged and I guess financially healthier for just that little bit longer. And then, you know, with that little bit of knowledge, you'll gain a little bit more and then a little bit more, same as everything. Uh, but it's just that initial step to actually, I, I know with regards to cars, I know people that actively avoid wanting to learn anything about it because then they'll know they'll have to fix their own car. So I, I feel like it's the same with finance. I am probably that person when it comes to finance. I am actively avoiding learning anything about it because then I'll have to face reality. Um, but it's, I mean, if you're going to go into business, it's kind of important to know what's going on with regards to your money. Do you feel like there's a, a difference in, with regards to like we've looked at sort of starting out small and that OTs, you know, if we've got that passion and a lot of OTs do have a passion for whatever clinical area it is that they're working in, does that, do you feel like we've got enough skills or enough drive to for that to transfer over to large businesses or are we best suited to, you know, private practices and smaller businesses as a profession, I guess? I think it's really different for different people. Um, and I think having some education about the self-discovery and, you know, your strengths, your challenges, your priorities, your purpose will help you to best decide which direction is best fit for you and your lifestyle and, you know, the people in your circle. So for some OTs, I would say yes. You know, maybe you do stay as a solopreneur and that, you know, works best for you and you wear all the hats. And then for others, you, you grow a large enterprise. Um, but I do think that having opportunities within academia for self-discovery would help people to know which direction may be the better, the yep. better fit. I, I don't think every you know, <laughs> I teach entrepreneurship in some programs and it's interesting. I had a conversation with another person who also teaches and she says, I get the worst reviews, you know, whenever I teach, you know, at the end of this course, I get the worst reviews because students are saying, why are we learning about this? We're going to school to become OTs. <laughs> we don't want to be entrepreneurs. But she said, inevitably, after they graduate, there's a percentage of them that will come back and say, I'm so glad that we had this as part of our curriculum, you know, I decided I do want to go into business. Um, so if, I, if, if everyone had that opportunity for exploration, then those who choose to go more in debt can do so. And those who, who prefer not to, you know, can, cannot. Brock, I want to hear what you have to say, because you're also in academia and I'm sure that you are sharing things with your students that you know are so important that they need to know, they need to hear it, they need to learn it right now. And you, you maybe you get like these blank stares or this like, why do I need, like they don't understand Everything. the importance of it. <laughs> what is occupation? Everything. Uh, 
No, I mean, I, I completely agree. Like, that's it's something that I've thought about for a little while, mainly due to I've got a number of friends that are uh, in that space, and some even do do consulting uh, for people with regards to starting businesses. And I've heard that advice around the learning about finances and the business side of it from multiple people, Sarah. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it's something that I haven't heard of a lot of, you know, over here anyway in Australia. I haven't heard of a lot of university courses including it. I think I've heard of one that included, I think it was, oh, I think it was an elective module as part of a subject where the students could choose to do it. Um, and I, I'm not, I don't have a lot of details about what they were taught. I just know that there was... Um, uh, some kind of module around entrepreneurship, uh, um, but uh, that's probably the only course that I've actually heard of even touching on it. It's something that we don't, I don't feel we do a lot of in the course that I teach in. It's something that sort of gets touched on as here's an option you may want to go into, but we don't really do anything, but it's definitely something I, I'd be keen to. I can definitely see... Uh, what Tamika was saying about them uh, with her friend not sort of seeing the value in it at that point in time but then maybe realising after the fact that, oh, wait a minute, this is actually kind of important because I see that a lot with all kinds of topics. Um, uh, I think one of the difficulties with regards to that in a, in an OT course is a lot of the students don't really know what OT is when they first get into it. So the or they have such a narrow view of it. It might be just, you know, something they've seen or they've experienced, like OTs work in hospitals. Okay, cool. There's a ton of stuff we do aside from hospitals. Um, but that's their view of OT. So to them, starting your own business and running your own practice and doing something that's you know something maybe that's never been done before within OT in a private setting is almost too mind blowing or too out there to to comprehend at that point in their study. Uh, whereas you know once we're out and we've actually seen it, or if they actually get the opportunity to have someone come in like yourself and educate them around that, then all of a sudden it's like, oh wait a minute, this is that thing that she was talking about when we had that class that I was kind of half tuned in for because I wasn't sure if it was going to be valuable. Now I get what she was talking about. I mean, I can, I, I understand that sort of process just from my own study because there was half of the things I didn't really know what we were, why we were learning them until you know, I went on placement and then I went, oh, that's why we learn those things. Why do we learn about models? I don't get it. That doesn't make any sense. Oh, wait a minute. Here's how I can use that stuff. So I, I think that's a very common process for learning. And I, I wonder whether, obviously, giving them some exposure in the latter part of their course might be very valuable. But I wonder whether there's some other way that it might be structured, just from an educational point of view, to kind of be seeded throughout the course rather than just sort of in a block at the end. Mainly because, I mean, we all know that how we learn is we take this new bit of information and we attach it to something we already know. And if what we're trying to teach them is something, so out there that they've never even considered it, then that makes it a little bit harder for them to actually take that in and learn it. Whereas if it's something that we've built on, you know, throughout the course, whether it's a 
two-year master's or a three-year or a four-year undergrad, whatever it is, depending on your country, uh, it might help seed a generation of OTs that has a better understanding of the sheer possibilities of this profession because I really see that the established positions that we have, you know, the traditional OT positions, I really see them being very limiting on on the profession itself on terms of where the profession is going to grow and where we're going to go. And even on, on my own podcast, I'm occupied, the, some of the, the, the people that I've talked with on that podcast that have the most exciting, to me, like occupation-based practices are ones that have taken the plunge, followed their passion, turned it into a business, and are, are doing something that is so not the traditional OT space. They're not on a rehab ward giving out wheelchairs or whatever it is that people imagine that we do in that traditional space. They're the people that I see as shaping the next generation, or shaping where the profession's going and what we can actually do with it. Michelle, I can see you're like, chomping at the bit to say something oh (laughs) no no I'm not I'm listening I'm actively listening um I'm curious if so I never took a finance class or never even had the option in high school or um certainly I, I mean I could have in college I guess but if I was heading towards a business major but even in um my undergraduate, which was in health promotion and education, um, which had like a big program development emphasis for health programs. We never had any sort of um, finance training. Um, And I don't know, Brock, I'm not as familiar with your guys' education system, if that is a common core now. Yeah. So I just, I think that's so interesting just as a life skill that not one of us had that as a basic class. I got yeah. taught how okay. to sew a pair of pants and I still don't know anything about interest and <laughs> in investing or money or anything. I'm like, in terms of life you skills, I think... You learn how to sew pants? Mate, I am a keen sewer. Well, not keen, Man. but I'm good at it. My home econ- economics did not really teach me nearly as much, Yeah. So um, I wish I I'd like learned some could... of that stuff earlier. It would have probably yeah. been more useful because judging by the number of pants that I've made in my life, I feel like finances might have been a much more useful skill. So you're in academics, Brock. Why do you think that that isn't considered a a, a course that would be relevant? Or do you think that that could be a course that, could come up, say, as like an elective or something like that? Honestly, I think up until this point, the a lot of the university courses are teaching to the demand of the industry. And unfortunately, entrepreneurship isn't uh, like an organized industry in itself. So it's almost seen as people that are breaking out of what the industry currently holds. So they're not able to make noise for people to come and join them because they're usually sort of independent silos, independent practices, that kind of thing. Whereas the industry, as dictated by you know the universities, is often just the major health systems and where which you know makes up those traditional OT roles that we were talking about before. So I, I 
it's hard. I can kind of see both sides where I can see that that's where we really, in my opinion, we need to be moving people into that area, like mm-hmm. follow their passions. And this, the, there is untapped potential in this profession and the basis, the scientific basis that the whole profession's made under to do some absolutely amazing things with the freedom that that entrepreneurship space brings from a clinical perspective. But then... Oh, sorry, Brock. I didn't mean to interrupt Oh, yeah, no, I'm just saying, but then it's it's that sort of... I, I think people that are committing to, you know, studying for four years or however long it is, and then some of the the students that I've talked to, then coming out and going, well, you know what I want? I want more uncertainty. That's what I need. Uh, <laughs> find that a very difficult, you know, that transition from uni to full-time work is, is difficult anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I haven't seen a lot of the students that I've uh, been engaged with take that plunge. And I feel like it's because it's almost like finally I can get out and earn money. And I can go and get a job somewhere and I can just get paid. This is what I've been trained to do, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I think it's going to take universities get the trends independently as opposed to sort of industry demand in order to, for that change to happen. And I, I honestly think it's going to really come to the practitioner side of people that are doing it and interested in it and really planting the seed for others to be like, this is what I'm doing. This is how I did it. This is why I'm passionate about it. This is why we need it. And talking more and more and more about it. And even just in the five or six years that I've really been in this kind of entrepreneur space, in the beginning, there wasn't a lot of chatter. At least I wasn't coming across it. And now with podcasts, with social media, with Facebook groups, like there's more and more conversations. We're, we're being inspired by other people. We're hearing what they're doing and being like, okay, maybe that's not exactly what I want to do, but like I can learn bits and pieces from them. And the other piece that I really try to instill is through my clinical educator lens. When I get students, I'm like, if you guys want to learn about business, hit me up. Like, let's have conversations. I currently have two students and like two weeks ago we sat down and I literally just like hashed out everything about business. Well, in a nutshell, right? There's so much more I could have said, but like we went into legal entities, we went into finances, we went into all this kind of stuff and it's really planting that seed. So when they are ready, they know that they can either come back to me or they can go back to whoever it was that they were talking and ask questions and and find that support. But if we're not encouraging it from that level, it's it's I don't really feel like it's going to continue. We're not going to instill that. And I feel like, and maybe it's just because more and more people are getting on social media and talking about it, but I do feel like there's more students and new grads that are going into the field that have interest in entrepreneurship. And then they're like, well, is it too soon? Should I not do it? Do I need to have 10 years of experience? And I know, Tamiko, you said two years, two years into the field. And you were like, yeah, I'm, I'm going into private practice. Some people are starting as a student. Some people are starting their first job, they're going into their own thing, but it's really like, we just, we have to get it out there and we have to talk about it. We have to have conversations on podcasts about it. So people can start to understand like, Hey, this, this is something that could work if you're passionate. And if you can gain all the skills that you need, that you might not have going into it. 
you read my mind. One thing I was thinking just before, well, just before you started talking, was I wonder if you know those in that space who are taking students could you know highlight the business side of it, not just the here's how we see clients and here's what we do side of the business. Um, whether that would surge more interest through you know upcoming graduating classes. Um, one thing I really do want to ask around uh probably we'll start with Tamika is social entrepreneurship because you mentioned earlier that you had a a not for profit is that right yes. yeah how how do you see that social entrepreneurship fitting with uh you know everything else that we've talked about today now really what Sarah said earlier about you know as much as we're emphasizing finances. And I said, I want to be rich and how important that is (laughs) having the balance that it's not just about um, the money. It's about social impact and social enterprises are really able to address occupational injustices and social injustices. And that's, that's proven, you know, people that create enterprises that are really focused on those problems are able to make significant change in the world. And so that's why I say social entrepreneurship, because although finances are important, it's not the only thing. And you have to have a balance. So, you know, you see the extremes where it's all about, you know, the passion and then finances are left behind, or it's all about the money, you know, and the productivity and the quantity and hit this, you know, this, this particular number, and then the social impact is left behind. So when I say social entrepreneurship, I'm talking about entrepreneurship that has that balance that focuses on having a social impact and being profitable in order to increase the social impact. Do you think that, because I, I do know a few people that have their those two kind of, you know, one profit and one sort of social uh, cause that they're, they're working towards, but have them almost as separate entities. Do you think it's... Uh, for someone that's just starting out, do you think it's something manageable to consider having them all rolled into their one practice? Is that possible or is it better to separate those two sort of roles, so to for lack of a better term? Depends. And so the reason um, I decided to separate it is because I wanted to be able to take donations and people to be able to ha- to do a write-off. And so when they know it's a nonprofit, then they understand that that can be a write-off. And also there's opportunities for grant funding. You know, you can get grants as a for-profit, but it's definitely more common to get grants from a, yep. for a nonprofit. And the other thing is that I do a lot of different things and I did not want to um, be totally responsible for it. And nobody owns a nonprofit. So people think, oh, nonprofit, it doesn't make money. That doesn't, that's not what it means. <laughs> it means that the profit is um, goes back into the business and nobody owns it. So you have board members who volunteer, they don't get paid, they volunteer to run it. So I, I, although I founded the nonprofit, I am not the president of the nonprofit. There's someone else that's the president. There's another person that's the secretary. I mean, I am the secretary. There's someone else who's the treasurer. So I can take notes and that's all I'm really responsible for, you know, and, and they, people delegate certain things to me. Um, so I think it depends on what the goal is for, you know, if you choose to do to do a nonprofit, what is the goal and what is the best way to um, structure that, whether that's, you know, as a part of the for-profit or creating a separate 
entity. You know, there's definitely some work, more work involved in startup if you're going to do two separate entities. So um, again, looking back at your strengths and your challenges and your priorities and what fits best in your, your lifestyle. So that's a long, a long answer to your, to your question. But again, I think it really depends on the individual. Yeah. I I feel like, uh, like, I guess that was probably one of the things I was worried about when I was talking about earlier with regards to my passion changing, if I turned it into a business, because I think my initial uh, idea around starting this business was going to be this big social, like I wanted to do mental health care, but I wanted to do it differently or do it better than you know anyone else was doing. And I feel like uh, what I was probably thinking around at the time was probably more of a social entrepreneurship than a business thing when maybe I should have been trying to set up the business side of it first so that I, which would then have enabled me to do it, uh, the social aspect of it. Does that is that am I on the right track if I misconstrued? That makes, that makes complete, <laughs> complete sense. I'm not going to say you're a weirdo like Michelle said earlier. No, that's I, okay. You can if you I, want I, to. I don't mind. <laughs> I got broad shoulders. I can cop it. No, I get I get what you're saying. Yeah, if you set it up in order for it to have that that social impact, but it does have to be set up the right way in order to accomplish that goal. I think the big thing for anybody that is looking or considering getting into entrepreneur entrepreneurship is really understanding what your why is. Because if you can figure out what your why is behind what it is that you want to do, that's going to guide you to either staying small, going big, or going nonprofit, going for profit. You have to understand the why and then base any decision that you make for your company, for your practice on that why and really have that firm grounding because it, 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 being an entrepreneur is not an easy path. But if you can stick true to like your mission, your values and your why, that's going to guide you where you where you need to go. And that's that's pretty much what I was taking away to Miko from what you were just saying with like the nonprofit. You knew that you wanted to be able to get grants and take donations. Well, if that's the why behind it, then you know that like you have to go into that nonprofit realm and and that kind of stuff. So having that firm grounding and that like solid foundation in your why is really going to take you a long way in your kind of entrepreneurship journey. And yeah, and I just want to add to that, Sarah, knowing your why and then have a strategy behind that why with your strategic planning, because, you know, I, you know, we've talked a lot about things that I've done great, but in terms of, (laughs) you know, sometimes I I don't focus, you know, and I love entrepreneurship so much that I, I say, I, sometimes I say I have shiny, business object syndrome or whatever you want to call it, where I'm like, oh yeah, I could do this. And oh yeah, there's a need for that. And um, when I sat down with a mentor and we really looked at strategy and when we had the why at the top, you know, the mission, the vision and values. And then we say, okay, whenever a new idea, you you think of this great, you know, you have this big epiphany and this light bulb goes off and you're like, yeah, let's let's go do this. Let's go back to the mission, vision and values. (laughs) Let's look at your strategic plan and let's see if it fits. So one year I bought a DynaVision. This is a very expensive piece of equipment. You know, when I was doing low vision rehab, I was like, oh yeah, we got an office now. We're in a healthcare complex. You know, let's get a DynaVision. <laughs> and I just did it. <laughs> you know? And um, I had like 
I don't remember how many people use that Donavision, but not not very many. <laughs> you know, it was huge financial investment. And had I had sat down and looked at the the mission, vision, and values, and looked at the strategic plan, and and looked at the money, and you know, really looked at data in terms of how many people do we need to get in here, and let's look at the market. And I didn't do that. <laughs> so, so you have your why, which I had, but then having your strategy. And always when you're you're doing your decision making, going back to your strategy and that and that why. Wise, wise words. And that's probably uh, probably a good reason why I didn't start a business because I'm quite impulsive with very similar things to that. I'm like, oh, this seems like a great idea. Uh, yeah, that's probably that makes me feel a little bit better about not starting a private practice if that's if that's possible. I'm my own worst enemy when it comes to that. Uh, I think we we might start wrapping up from there. Uh, one thing I would like to ask anyone who would like to contribute is someone who is just about to start or just starting moving into this entrepreneurship space. What would be the one piece of advice that you feel would be the most important for them to know as they begin this this exciting new journey into well everything business ot everything gosh there's so many pieces of advice but i do want to say it's okay to make mistakes and so when you're saying you know i'm impulsive i am too you know and i made mistakes and then i just i look at the mistake and i say okay what did i what did i learn from this? And how would I do this differently the next time? I've, I've made a lot of money and I've lost a lot of money. But each time um, I go back to the why, as Sarah said earlier, I, I problem solve and I go back and I pick myself back up off the floor. <laughs> you know, so, okay, we, we're, we're going to do this again. So you will make mistakes. It's part of life. You know, it's what do you learn from those mistakes? Uh, from this conversation, I feel like one of the biggest takeaways that I had was um, what she said to Miko of putting on your oxygen mask first, that kind of analogy that um, in order to help more people, we really have to have healthy boundaries around money and and who we can serve so that we can help more people instead of um, just kind of that bleeding heart mentality of, of give, 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 and then the business doesn't take off. So that it's okay um, to have priorities and um, yeah, to have those healthy boundaries. So I think that that was really helpful for me. So I really appreciated that. I think my, oh gosh, again, there's so many things I could say here, but I think the biggest piece of advice that I could say right now would be to believe in yourself. I think as a profession, a lot of times we tend to have imposter syndrome, like we've talked about before. We tend to not value what we bring to the table as much as we should. And I think there's a lot of self-doubt and kind of disbelief of really what we can do in terms of entrepreneurship. And I know that I've gone through it. And yes, we're not going to know everything and we are going to learn as we go and we're going to make mistakes. And those mistakes are the most important thing to happen. You want them to happen 
fast and you want to learn from them, you want to move and you want to fail forward and all that good stuff. But really remember that, remember to believe in yourself because it will get hard. It will be hard and you might not feel equipped to be able to do it, but use your resources, believe in yourself and you'll be able to push through. I love it. It's all so lovey-dovey. I love it. Probably the one thing I've, I've, I've pulled from this discussion and it's something that I, I think has always worried me around private practices, don't be afraid to make money. It's, that's, and I've heard it from other, not necessarily within OT, but other sort of business-related content is, you know, I, like I was asking earlier around the, the social enterprise side of it, that needs to be funded somehow and if you're able to set up a really successful business that is able to fund you know things from there then go for it there's nothing wrong with making money and i feel like that's a big uh hurdle for a lot of therapists so that's that's something that i've definitely taken out of today which is amazing I'm not saying i'm going to jump out and start uh, but uh, a private practice, but it's given me food for thought. Um, I, I'd just like to say a massive thank you to Miko for, for coming in, uh, sharing your, your knowledge, your insights with us. Uh, whereabouts can people find you if they want to look you up or your podcast up? Where's the best way that people can find you online? So faceandconsulting.com is my consulting website. If you want to look at therapeutic solutions, um, it's just www.therapeuticsolutionsofnc.com. And there's a link to the um, nonprofit there as well. And then the podcast is on Podbean. It's Therapy Entrepreneurs and Leaders of Color. And then there's um, the books are on Amazon.com. Awesome. I will throw all those links into the show notes of this episode. Thank you again, Sarah. Whereabouts can people find you? You can find me at otforlife.com. Beautiful. And Michelle, thank you for joining us once again. Whereabouts can people find you? Thanks uh, so much. So my website is incorporatemindfulness.com. Beauty. Thanks so much, Tamiko. It was amazing thank to meet you. Thank you all for having me. And people can find me at occupiedpodcast.com. If you do like this episode, please do like, share it with a friend. Uh, share it with someone who's considering making a private practice or even if they're not who's adamantly against it share it with them because we want them to learn this stuff as well uh if you want to get in touch with us here you can head over to the otroundtable.com and a massive thank you to everyone who's watched on youtube or listened to the podcast on your favorite podcast app uh we really really appreciate your support so thank you very much everyone done magic Woo! high five <laughs> virtual high five <laughs> <laughs>